let me begin and I want to introduce um, our wonderful guest here, Cynthia Enlow, feminist activist, writer, scholar extraordinaire, um, research professor at oh. Clark University, and author of, I think, over a dozen books, um, and someone who is, has really been in the forefront of um, uh, forcing us to think about the relations between gender uh, and militarism and imperialism, um, in a nutshell. But so much more. It's such a it's such a treat to have you here. I'm Susanna Walters. I'm the editor of Signs. I am joined here by my wonderful co-editors of the special issue on gender and the rise of the global right, Agnieszka Graf from Poland, and Ratna Kapoor, who comes to us from London, Queen Mary's University. We have been uh, editing a special issue, which will be out in spring of 2019 on uh, gender and the rise of the global right. And this discussion with Cynthia is part of that. I should also say it's part of our initiative at Signs um, called Ask a Feminist, where we um, ask a feminist about pressing political issues of the day that the, the mainstream media generally does not ask feminists about these things, and we think we should. And that is part of a broader uh, initiative called the Feminist Public Intellectuals Project, um, which is an initiative that really is an attempt uh, to bring new readers into signs and to be very outward gazing in terms of the relationship between feminist scholarship and feminist activism. Super. So that's my introduction. And let me just um, begin with the broadest sort of possible question here, and then we'll all jump in and have a discussion. Um, given that this is part, uh, this discussion with you is part of um, this special issue on gender and the rise of the global right, I wonder if you can give us some of your thoughts about the relationship between um, uh, sort of misogynist and gender uh, normative social movements and this, at this moment, and the rise of these imperialist, um, fascist, neo-fascist, populist, neo-populist, uh, social movements that seem to be um, spanning the globe. And what you see is the relationship between um, sort of gender politics and the way gender fits into those right-wing, new, you know, newly construed right-wing movements um, and how we might move um, in analyzing that relationship. Well, I think one of the wonderful things about this special issue and about feminists generally is that they always ask the question. <laughs> They ask the question about socialist revolutions and gender. They ask the questions about anti-colonialist yeah. um, movements and gender. So asking about where are ideas about masculinities and ideas about femininities, where are anxieties about women um, in particular, where are they in um, any social movement, right. I think is always worth asking as we all know as feminists, you don't know what answer you're gonna get when you look at a particular movement, um, but it's always worth asking, or put it the other way. One's really, I've learned, really likely to get a very unreliable understanding of any social movement if you haven't seriously looked at where women are and where ideas about gender are. In the global, well, it's, I'm, Let's hold off calling it the global right, okay. because that sounds as though it's more cohesive than perhaps it is. Um, so, in fact, 
it becomes a question. Right. How global right. is the current, not just conservative movement, but right, and we can talk about what the difference is. Um, but in any um, right-wing movement, um, inclination, tendency, whether it be Poland or India, um, it is definitely worth asking not only how anxieties about masculinities play a role in fueling. So it doesn't just fit, it oftentimes fuels right. a movement. Right. But that's a question. I mean, the question then becomes, for anybody who's studying either Polish or Indian or US or um, Slovenian um, right-wing current movements, right. the, ask, the question it, to ask, I think, is for all of us, um, is to what extent we all work with graduate students, right? So we all want to be sure that we know how to ask the question that's researchable. <laughs> right. Um, and so to what extent are anxieties about masculinities, that's just one question, to what extent are they simply vacuumed up into a right-wing movement mm. that we're researching? Or to what extent are they not just vacuumed up, if you will, and become part of it, to what extent are they fueling it? Right. At the beginning, at the middle, and at their later stages. Um, I'm very excited about this special issue because it's going to answer a lot of these questions. <laughs> I hope we will <laughs> answer some of Do you want to follow up on some of that, one of you? Yeah. I, I mean, I want to sort of almost flip the question a little bit to ask the other end of the spectrum that... Um, we, we talk about the anxieties of masculinities, but what about the anxieties of feminism? Uh, I, I, I sort of, I mean, you, you've, you've spoken in your work really interestingly about the uh, gendering of power. And um, there are feminists or women who are very powerful, right? Uh, and they can take the feminist discourse in a particular direction. Um, for example, in the current moment, in the context of what we're using, uh, uh, the term the global right or right-wing nationalist movements, we've also seen a convergence of liberal feminist ideas with these right-wing masculinist, uh, masculine uh, nationalist movements, um, say in campaigns against practices such as veiling, right, all over Europe and France and Belgium, Italy, Denmark, Netherlands, there's a whole host of countries that, and these, um, these bans have actually been supported in part by feminist agendas, partly by feminist agendas. So I'm curious about, and this is my question, the role that feminist has, feminism has played, or a certain strand of feminism has played in enabling some of these right-wing nationalist movements or the global right in specific cultural and historical contexts. Um, and what your views are on that? Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? And if you do agree on it, well, you know, how does feminism actually fix some of the problems or the messiness that we may have contributed to? Well, I think, this, Ratna, this is a really great um, avenue to explore, I think. And I think you're quite right. It needs to be done country by country, anxiety mm -hmm. by anxiety, um, xenophobic movement by xenophobic movement. Um, I think what is striking about the question of in Western Europe, so for instance, not in the UK, um, not in Ireland, 
um, not in Scandinavia, um, so particularly in France and maybe in the Netherlands, so very specific places. The question about um, observant uh, women adopting not just a headscarf but a full veil, and that's very different in what kind of emotions it arouses. Um, mm -hmm. There's been, and you know this better than I do, um, but there's been intense debate amongst feminists. Mm -hmm. um, and there, well, there are two things. One, there's intense debate amongst French feminists. They are by no means monolithic, and they divided sharply with each other around questions. And in France, this is about secularism, right? Correct. Which has a very particular history in French politics that it doesn't really have in any other European country. And so the debates amongst French feminists over any kinds of signs of what were taken to be religious, observant symbolism really were very sharp indeed. So there wasn't a feminist response, I don't believe. Um, there was an intense in feminist debate, and I think it has a lot to do in France, obviously, about um, uh, racism. Um, but also about feminism's relationship to secularism in right. French politics. Right. That doesn't come up in Sweden. You don't hear, and I'm working with Swedish feminists these days on different things because of the rise of militarism in, in Sweden. Um, right. um, but you don't hear this debate in Sweden. Um, in fact, I was just at a Swedish big meeting um, that brought together a lot of progressive groups uh, from all over the country. Um, and it was intensely pro-immigrant rights, intensely. Um, so that I think it really does, I think you're quite right that the question needs to be asked, and I think it needs to be asked country by country, feminist movement by feminist movement, and feminist by feminist. So there's some people who declare themselves feminists and come out against women who adopt the veil um, and they are then challenged immediately by other women in that country who call themselves feminists. I mean, I, I really, hmm. this is the great advantage, right. I think, of signs and other communities of scholarship and researchers. We ask questions. Right. We don't ha make sweeping statements, any of us. We, I mean, we don't, we don't always know how to follow up on our <laughs> sharply posed questions. But that's why we all work with graduate students and undergraduate students, because we need other people to answer the question. But we do ask the questions, and then we want investigations that are reliable, that come up with sometimes quite surprising and oftentimes quite uncomfortable um, right. findings. That's right. Um, I, I was just at a, as a symposium about the anti-gender movement in Brussels, and we had a quite quite a intense debate about this very issue. The what was called out as complicity of feminism in um, enabling some of these uh, movements by by creating this image of the veiled woman as a threat and a threat to women's rights and to security at the same time. And the, the discussion sort of went in the direction of what do we exactly mean by complicity? Do we mean causality or do we mean 
coincidence? How much influence do we have? I, and I'm I'm willing to agree with the idea that yes, we you know some strands of feminism have been complicit, some have been co-opted. Um, I don't think there is a causal relationship for the simple reason that uh, that those movements uh, have been doing this much longer. Uh, and they, I don't think they listen to feminists that much, which is not to say that we don't need to worry about homonationalism or racism within feminism. I just don't, I think that, you know, there's a, there, there's a difference between acknowledging that certain things un, are unclo uncomfortably close to each other and we didn't catch certain patterns early enough um, and uh, blaming ourselves. Um, and I think some of those feminist debates have gone in the direction of, oh my gosh, it's our fault. You know, we were neoliberals. We didn't notice this. We didn't know. I, you know, I've, I've been watching the, maybe because the Polish right is so strong. Um, I, I don't think feminism has that much influence on it, frankly, as some of these arguments suggest. No, in um, fact, I think you're right, Agnieszka, that one of the things that is so stunning, really, is how the right in many countries, um, in fact, makes feminists look more influential than they are right. as a scare tactic. Um, yeah. So that we, you know, they blow us up to, you know, mm -hmm. eight times our normal size. Um, because it makes us look like more of a threat. Right. And then they name themselves defenders of women. Absolutely. Um, Would borrowing they be that powerful? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, no. I, I think this conversation yeah. is just exactly the conversation to have. Yeah. And as I say, what it does is it does call for research. Right. That's mm -hmm. the only way that we can actually sort this out. So let me let me go back to sort of something you said originally, right? That you know, before we fl flipped it over here, I'd like to reflip it back because I, you know, this question, and we've been talking about this in terms of the special issue, this question of, you know, this big question of whether these this sort of not the misogyny ever went away. Let's be clear, and not the patriarchy ever went away, but the re the resurgence of new and you know ever more disgusting forms of masculine domination and control and patriarchal, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, to the extent, I mean, this, this way you phrased it, whether it's, you know, sort of vacuumed up um, by these other movements that, that use it, at, you know, in a, in, a, in a sort of instrumental way, or whether these, for, these sort of resurgent forms of toxic masculinity and and woman hating because there's really no other way to put it I think um, whether they're actually central to many of these new newly resurgent forms of neo neo populism and right wing movements and I think yeah. that's and it is of course a research question um, but in your own research what have you come to some conclusions about where and when which where and when those things are you know, vacuumed up and where and when they're central. Well, I think one of the things that I'm watching and probably you each are watching as well is when the movement tries to turn to a political party. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And there are two things. When they are not parties, and in this, in the U.S., this is when they're militia movements. Right. Um, um, in India and um, Eastern Europe, they're oftentimes movements before they are parties. Sometimes they start right off as parties. And this really matters if they're electoral parties. Because one of the things that is really stunning is when they're militia movements, 
um, then they tend to be highly masculinized. It doesn't mean, and they, it doesn't mean that they ignore women because sometimes there are women in their families that they have to bring along right. into the husband or uncle or father or brother becoming a, a gun-wielding militiaman. Right. Um, but when they turn into political parties, um, then, and in fact, if, if they have aspirations to win something that look like semi-open, semi-open um, elections, they in fact have to find some um, appeal to women um, as voters. And that's often through some idealized notion of the family that's combined with right. a demonized votion of um, the, the yes, right, the Femocrats <laughs> and um, and feminists, right. and um, and that becomes deeply misogynist, and it really um, encourages oh. a lot of women to become misogynist in the right. sense of. Um, fearing feminists, fearing women who are breaking down the family, fearing women who, um, at least outside of some movements, um, uh, ignore marriage. Right. Um, so I think misogyny, I remember there was a, a wonderful feminist years ago who said to me once, as I was really you know, early in my feminism, and she shook her finger at me and she said, don't you ever give a talk without saying the word misogyny. I mean, I hardly knew how to spell misogyny, you know, right? But I've always remembered that. I've always remembered that because this was mid 80s, all right? And she was doing mainly work in the US, but she said, always keep your eye on misogyny. She said, don't mistake misogyny for patriarchy, for sexism. Right. Make sure you know what you're talking about, right? But never take your eye off misogyny. Right. And I think what is interesting at this point in so many countries' politics is a lot of people know how to spell misogyny now. <laughs> I mean, it's really very right. interesting. Especially in the 1980s, you had, if I, so, Thanks to her, I began to actually try and look at it and say it right. <laughs> when I found it. Um, but now it's in journalism without italics, without quotes around it. It's out there <laughs> as if, well, you can't understand what's going on in a country's political life unless you at least are curious about misogyny. I think this is a new moment. Right. Well, I think, and I mean, that goes into sort of the Me Not Too Not new moment, for misogyny, by but, the way. But new, new for the public discussion of yeah. it. Well, I guess I, again, want to follow up, push back. Not even push back. It's just to get, you know, the conversation. This is, uh, this engagement of gender and the global right is such a complicated one. Uh, and I think our questions are, are struggling with how do we have specific discussions with a title that's so big and means different things in different contexts. So, but we're, that's why I want to keep on asking questions back to you that uh, in response to some of your answers, for example, on masculinities, um, uh, the question was around toxic masculinities, but those very toxic masculinities are targeting other types of masculinities, um, whether they're, and that's also a question of gender, whether they're black masculinities, whether they're migrant masculinities, whether they're 
the you know demonization of the Muslim man um, in my context in India. Uh, so um, I think it, the story of masculinities within the context of gender and the global right is an incredibly complicated one. And I'd like to hear more on your views um, regarding how you know one uh, why a particular understanding of masculinity has become so so attractive and has actually managed to seize power not in non-democratic context where they may already be there but in liberal democratic context how did that happen i think this also relates to that kind of surprise question which you you like to ask you know suddenly after all this effort three decades or more of um, engagements with gender look who's at the top of the food chain again you know this kind of toxic masculinity but it's managed to crowd out all these other the sort of the new man and other other forms of masculinity so i'd love to hear your views on this yes i mean one of the great um contributions i think of feminist research at least for the last 30 years has been to look at the ways in which um, efforts at feminization are played out between men mm-hmm. and um and men play this game with each other um it it's quite a serious game and they play it with each other all the time and mm-hmm. they play with each other sometimes when they're off camera and sometimes when they are in the public eye and that is men trying to um present themselves as more legitimate, more reliable, stronger, more logical, more rational um, uh, than the other man uh, by trying to claim that the other man is um, feminized. So feminization as a process and a process, it's really a, an, it, it's, it's the weaponization of, of femininity is men's, many men's, not all, many men's attempts to feminize other men in order to delegitimize them. And that only, of course, works in a patriarchy. The feminization game played by men against men um, works because in a patriarchal society, which most of ours are, um, the feminized man is the less legitimate man, is the less reliable man, is the less logical man, is the less uh, electable man, um, and so that Ratna, I think, um, goes way back. Obviously, it's been played for decades and generations. Uh, to take it to a more extreme moment is what perhaps we're seeing now. Um, it's one of the reasons why Justin Trudeau is so interesting mm-hmm. as a an electoral phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, I have friends who flew to Canada, Canadian friends. Um, in order to vote liberal, and they'd never voted liberal in their life. They always vote NDP, which is more to the left. And they voted liberal um, to get Stephen Harper out and to get um, uh, Justin Trudeau in. And Hmm. everybody in Canada realized that there was a feminization game going on between the Canadian conservatives and the Canadian liberals um, in the last um, national election. So feminization... Um, it goes on also in closed door meetings. That is, I remember um, hearing from a person who was inside one of those closed door national, it happens in national security circles, where somebody brought up the question of wounding. 
which I'm very interested in for other reasons, um, and the whole social politics of wounding. And, and because of a certain weapon uh, that was being proposed to be used in a certain conflict. And he immediately, it was an all-male group around the table, and other, another man in the room delegitimized him, or tried to, by essentially, didn't say out loud, woman, but essentially said, you're being a weak sister, right? To a, man, a man to a man. And that's about choice of weapons um, in a national security debate in a very closed room setting. So I think what you're pointing to is really worth looking at. That is the ways in which women and men as voters assess different kinds of manliness. I mean, the, the new prime minister, or oh, the recent prime minister of Ireland, Ireland's one of the bright spots, right. at least this week. <laughs> it is now. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least this week. But he is um, a man who has both um, a white Irish and an Asian um, Irish parentage, um, as well as being gay. Right. Um, and um, he managed to lead a country, he wasn't the main leader, it was feminists um, in the campaign, to an historic um, overturning of a constitutional amendment last week. Right. So I'm, I am interested in uh, the Viktor Orban uh, phenomenon. Um, but that's not the Macron phenomenon, and it's not the Trudeau phenomenon. And so the question becomes, how are voters assessing what kinds of manliness are most appropriate for addressing um, their particular anxieties. And this raises the question about Modi, of course, right? And how he appeared as a, a state premier before he became um, president, prime, prime minister. Um, and what did he appeal to amongst voters? Which then brings me, now we're getting down to really government 101 kind of <laughs> um, questions, but they're not, they're not irrelevant, even if they aren't the kind of questions that most of us ask most of the time. And that is, what's the gender gap in these elections? Right. And there are gender gaps in a number of the elections. I haven't seen any Slovenian data. Maybe some of you have seen, I mean, only 25% of the electorate uh, this past week voted for the right wing. I mean, he had got the most votes. Right. Um, but I haven't seen any gender data on that. Um, I know in in earlier voting on the National Front in France, there was a significant gender gap in French and women's voting, even though a lot of women did vote for the National Front in earlier elections. So the presentation of masculinities, the demonization, as you say, Ratna, of certain kinds of masculinities, as if there is this thing called black masculinity, which of course is a total myth, there's no black masculinity, there's no Muslim masculinity, there's no Latino masculinity right. there, you know, there's no Slovenian masculinity. Um, but it does also raise questions in electoral systems about how women and men come to trust or distrust certain kinds of formations of masculinity and then how they act on that. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. But it is, it is also that men play the misogynist game against men. 
And I think part of what your point is, you know, which we've been talking about as well, is just how unbelievably uneven this is. I mean, I think part of what Rotten was saying here that, you know, this, this element of surprise, maybe not surprise for some that, you know, after these decades of feminist work and this, de and particularly in the U.S., this sense of here we are, you know, on the cusp of having our first woman president and these sort of trans, you know, the, the, the sort of transformations of, of, um, uh, of, a sort of feminism spreading out into the public sphere in more in more popular kinds of ways and so on and then the the you know sort of revelation um, to many of us uh, that that in fact those you know those those things that we thought were transformed were in fact um, not transformed at all right so the idea that I mean I you know I guess you can look at some of this as backlash which I think it is might be a not in fact an accurate way to look at it, um, or you can look at it as we had illusions about how far feminism had come in certain venues. Certainly in the U.S., I think that's true. You know, the illusion that we were in a post-feminist world, or we were in oh, I don't think all of that. I, was there a single feminist who thought? Oh, any, I think there were. We, I mean, I think there is a, gosh, to get what, to, to rottenness, but I think there is a certain kind of liberal under? feminist that did believe. You know, uh, we were that the that hardcore misogyny and that that kind of stuff was largely a part of the past. Oh, I don't. Gosh. I mean, we didn't believe <laughs> that, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, they're they're always um, optimists um, <laughs> in every movement, right? Um, every revolutionary yeah. movement, every uh, uh, feminist movement, every anti-racism movement. There are optimists who think that we've come further than yeah. we have. But um, speaking personally, I'm neither a cynic, I'm not a pessimist, but I definitely never lick the mm -hmm. icing off the cake. <laughs> Can I ask my question, please? I actually remember uh, looking at your book the day Trump won the elections, and I, and I thought, yeah, I'm surprised. Um, and I had the same feeling uh, during Brexit. I just, I just couldn't believe it. This was happening. I have a lot of British friends who, you know, got themselves very drunk the day after. There's, just, there was the sense of this can't be ha happening. So my question is, you know, you've been around. You've advertised curiosity as a good feminist thing, um, and surprise. So were you surprised? Did you, did you, did you see this, this coming? I saw it coming in Poland to some extent, um, but I didn't see Trump coming at all. That's very interesting. You should tell us why you saw it just coming in Poland. Um, in Brexit, just coming back to how people voted, there was almost no gender gap between men and women's votes hmm. on Brexit. As yeah, many, as many, I mean, from the, of course, this depends on exit polling. Um, there are about as many women as men voted to to leave. Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I live in the same British bubble you do. All my friends were in total dismay, yeah. um, um, and many of them have European passports, not British passports. Um, mm. There was, I think, I, I rode on a, a bus. I was up in um, Bradford, and I took a bus afterwards with a woman who's South Asian British, and she said, well, it was the week before the Brexit, and she said, I am so worried. My family, my South Asian British family, is absolutely split. Said my sister yeah. is my sister is going to vote to leave. I'm 
absolutely committed to remain. Um, and I thought, oh boy. I'd heard mm. this also from other um, South Asian British friends of mine. They said, within the South Asian communities, and of course they are diverse, they are not all the same, um, said there are real debates going on. Um, were we the last good immigrants, you know? Uh, which happens in the United States, it happens in every country, um, including Australia, New Zealand. Um, to be of recent immigrant um, heritage doesn't mean that you are all in favor of the next um, generation of new immigrants. So I, I think I had at least a tremor of worry. I had, I, to tell you the truth, I was surprised too. I, I don't think, I don't think, to tell you the truth, that I paid enough attention to the Leave campaigners. They mm -hmm. seemed at talk about talk about masculinities. I thought that Boris Johnson and Farage, right, present presented their themselves in ways that were just not credible. Yeah, and naughty I, boys. Pardon me. It was the naughty boys effect, which That's I right. apparently and I thought, who's going to fall for this? But yeah. then you know you look and you look at the the election map afterwards again based mm -hmm. on actual returns and look how regional it was right wales voted let me get it right north northern ireland voted to stay wales voted to leave these are majorities not everybody northern mm -hmm. ireland voted to stay wales voted to leave london greater london voted to stay the northeast voted to leave scotland voted to stay right. may it didn't even I mean, the, the regional map was, in this case, more stunning than the gender map, even though the campaigning was very gendered. Mm -hmm. So, surprised? Yeah, I was surprised. I wasn't flabbergasted. I was dismayed, which is not the same as being flabbergasted. <laughs> I was dismayed, but was I caught completely dumbfounded? No. Pretty dumbfounded? Yes. And with Trump? With Trump, again, Clinton won 2.9 million more votes than Trump. So mm -hmm. it's really important not to mush yes, I agree. popular vote with the electoral college system. That doesn't mean that this gives me many better sleep, sleeping nights, but it just means let's be sure we don't, let's be sure our sentences are accurate sentences, mm -hmm. right? The majority of people who voted did not vote for Trump. Um, and in fact, Clinton won 2.9 million more votes than Donald Trump did. Was I still surprised? I had a dental hygienist who, running up to the election, okay, you all go to the dentist. I, many of our viewers go to the dentist. <laughs> Um, maybe not willingly, but you know, you go to the dentist and there you are, and I'm totally dedicated to dental hygienists. They're the <laughs> ones who keep me, you know, from going through worse dental um, adventures. Um, so I have my mouth open, there's a lot of stuff in my mouth, and my dental hygienist says, you know, I really do, this is a woman, a woman who's a recent immigrant woman, um, I really, 
I just really like Donald Trump. I, all the stuff is in my mouth, right? I know. That's a way you, it, yeah, you right. can't scream. Right. So when we finally got to the point, but, but I was really interested. I didn't want to so much argue with her. I wanted to actually, when I got the stuff out of my mouth, I said, why? And, and this, I think, is about American discourse and about media, and this is why signs is so important. Um, and she said, because he's honest. And I thought in American public life today, including entertainment life and news life and political life, this conflation of honesty with rudeness and mm. honesty with bluntness, as if bluntness is honest rather than just being blunt or rude or racist, um, I thought it was really interesting. Mm. Um, so I was, again, I was surprised, to tell you the truth, about the, the Trump. We had a big party. Oh, it was awful. You know, awful. Everyone has their <laughs> Worst election night, night yeah. story. Yeah, horrible. But I think it's really important to remember what the results were and what they weren't. If I can just add on to that, it's still not sure uh, it's going far enough because, you know, even if he hadn't won, right, suppose it had been Hillary Clinton, would we have said that would be a feminist success story, one, and number two, I would still be, sh I personally would be still so surprised at the numbers of people who voted for him. And who voted for him, yeah. I think one of the things is that, Ratna, if, if one, again, I'm sounding so much like a American Government 101 kind of type, which I'm not, you know, I don't know enough about American politics. But one of the striking things is how few American voters are willing to vote outside their party affiliation. And it is, we, when we study Jamaican politics, we know that marriages don't happen if they're across party lines. We know that parties really go down into the sinews of family life and personal life in a country like Jamaica, for instance. We don't usually talk that way about political parties in personal and family life in the United States. But I think perhaps we yeah, should get, yeah. we should become more interested in this because one of the things that was stunning was the very high percentage of people who identify as Republicans who could not imagine voting for anybody but a Repu Republican. Now it's true in American party politics today that there's a, there's a larger percentage of people who identify as independent, which means they just don't register by Democrat or Republican. Um, and that percentage now is higher than those who identify as Republican. So that's really, right. that is important. But it was really stunning to me how many Republicans, no matter how many people who identified as Republicans when they registered to vote or when they're asked by a pollster, um, just could not imagine voting for anybody but a Republican. Um, I remember my father had, was a lifelong Republican. And at one point, this is all about masculinities right now, at one point, my father became very disenchanted with George Bush Sr. It was all about militarism, really. Um, I mean, my right. father was quite a militarist. And he really, he got up to election day, 
and he was not going to vote. I don't know what he was going to do, but he just told me, his Democratic daughter, that he just he couldn't bring himself to, to vote for George Bush Sr. This is when he was running for re-election. And then at the last minute he said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't vote for anybody but a Republican. Um, and so I think the votes for Trump, I don't want to, I mean, I'm dismayed, obviously, deeply dismayed that people didn't take seriously his profound moral, political, and, well, flaws. I'm deeply dismayed about that. But I'm trying to really dig deeper and see what's going on there. Can I, I mean, can I sort of follow up with that? And because it's something, again, you know, we, we had been talking about and trying to get into the, the special issue because, of course, we're all miserably depressed about the current, the current situation. I don't know any feminist worth her salt who's sleeping well at this point. Um, but if we are sleeping well at all, I think it's because the, the resistance internationally has been so feminist and has been led by feminists everywhere, um, certainly in the US, but of course the women's marches were international, um, certainly in Poland, uh, you know, incredible resistance uh, coming from feminists, certainly in some of the stuff that's been going on in Latin America uh, has been led by feminists. So I, I'd love to talk a little bit about what this moment of feminist resistance to, to this particular forms of anti-feminist misogynist, racist, um, you know, formation is taking place. And what can, what, what can we, why is it, why is the resistance so feminist? I mean, I, that's taken me by surprise, frankly, in a wonderful way. And, and what can we all, you know, what can we imagine uh, building on that um, to, to have that become more institutionalized in terms of not just marches? You know, how do we turn, you know, how do we turn the pink pussy hats into, into political power? I mean, I guess it's another way of saying it. Well, I think, I think the resistance oftentimes becomes particularly and distinctly feminist um, when the right that's being resisted really shows its misogynist colors. It doesn't mean that feminists need to see blatant misogyny in order to see patriarchy. But there's nothing like um, blatant misogyny to really bring women to a more feminist moment in their own activism or to activism at all. Right. So I think the fact that so many of the right-wing movements um, have been so clearly sexist, so clearly sexist in their racism, so clearly sexist um, uh, in their symbolism, um, that they've been overwhelmingly male-led. But um, one of the things that has struck me um, is that the, the resistance um, is led by, well, led, is fueled by women who see not only the rollback of reproductive rights as crucial to their well-being and their daughter's well-being, Right. I think that's really important. I, and reproductive rights um, are violated 
not just in the name of blatant misogyny, but in the name of a very conservative notion of women's place, the domestication of women, um, and the um, role of motherhood in women's identity, and misogyny. And, and misogyny and, the, and conservative reproductive rights campaigns are not synonymous. They certainly, one is supported by the other. Um, so that I think in the women's marches, um, I think it was a lot of it was the blatant misogyny that they saw in the Trump campaign. Um, and in other countries, it was both that, but also the um, organized campaigns to roll back yeah. women's reproductive rights and women's access to decent paying um, employment that have now we've got hashtag me too picking up on this and yeah. that's about workplace life um, but I think that the, and that's fueling it as well and that isn't where we were in January of 2017 um, so the hashtag me too movement um, is also bringing up um, what goes on in workplaces, right? And what does misogyny look like at the water cooler, right? The proverbial coffee machine. I wonder, just a follow up for that, if if you feel that this is, I mean, that there is a moment here in the midst of all of this sort of horror, is there a moment to imagine a kind of feminist? transnational politics that mm -hmm. we can't have imagined taking place in the past? Well, there are several places where it has been taking place, right? right? I mean, I'm, I'm now being educated by feminists who do a lot of work within the United Nations. Um, and they have been building really interesting new alliances. For instance, probably many science readers or many feminist researchers don't follow small arms trade, that is trade in guns and rifles, but I do. <laughs> right, um, um, you know, I have a lot of per perverse curiosities, unfortunately. Um, and, but, but the um, arms trade treaty called the ATT, for those who don't follow UN politics, um, was an enormous success partly for feminists hmm. because what feminists managed to get into this UN treaty that was passed in 2013, which needless to say, the United States Senate has not ratified, and the Trump administration will never put forward to the Senate. Um, but still, what they managed to get through, this alliance, was to ally with other arms control people and say that gun violence, small arms as they're called, small gun violence is a major cause for the high lethality of domestic violence. Hmm. You introduce guns into domestic violence and you increase exponentially the chances that the woman who is being targeted will die, right? right. Uh, knives aren't good, fists aren't good, guns are lethal. Um, and they managed to get this very broad coalition that was working to roll back the international trade, this is a global issue, the international trade of guns. They managed to get into I think it's Article 7, um, that, that every government that is an exporter of small weapons now is responsible, if they ratify the treaty, is responsible for at least 
asking whether the guns they are allowing to be exported from their country are used in violence against women. Huh. And they use the term gender-based violence. The Vatican had a fit, and the Vatican lobbied right. very right. hard. The lo Vatican's very big in the United Nations. Right? Well, you know this, Anishita. Um, but they managed to get the word gender in over the Vatican's hmm. um, stiff resistance. So is there a new effort? I think there's a lot of learning right. that has gone on in the last 30 years, especially from the UN end of decade meeting in Nairobi. That was a big turning point. We talk about the meeting in Beijing, but the meeting in Nairobi was really important because it was for the first time that women from wealthier countries, not of whom, all of whom were wealthy themselves, those who went, but feminists from right. wealthy countries really had to take on board what women in poorer countries um, really had as their main priorities, but also their main analytical findings and analytical understandings. And Beijing built on that, but it really has transformed what a lot of international, transnational women's organizing is um, all about. It's not as good as it should be, right. and no transnational activist I've ever worked with thinks that we're, we've somehow hit you know, um, a good point yet, but there's definitely um, awareness that there wasn't in 1985. And so that means that the international resistance is much more conscious for instance, around immigration rights. I mean, that that really does help, but it also is internal um, racist and sectarian um, politics is much more on people's agenda yes. when they think about That's feminist um, organizing. Good enough? No. Better? Yes. It's tough, though. I mean, you've got, you've just got to well, I don't need to tell you three, you've done it. You have to stay awake longer than you want to. You have to stay in awkward meetings longer than you want to. You have to listen to people that are dressing you down more than you want to. It's not easy to really develop transnational feminist coordination. And I'm very, right. so that's why I say this, this movement uh, for the arms trade, the ATT treaty movement was Women from Mali were absolutely crucial in that right. movement. Uh, women from Brazil were absolutely crucial. They were the ones who really gathered data on how guns were used um, disproportionately in um, violence against women. And they helped really make the right. ATT a truly transgen transnational um, feminist effort. Well, I think what you're getting at, too, of course, and, and, and it's an interesting moment for that, is this question of what constitutes a feminist issue. I mean, that's been some of the shift, I think, that we've been seeing all over. Uh, we certainly have seen it in the Women's March, which were, you know, had this sort of platform that was uh, as pristine an intersectional platform as one can imagine. Um, we see it in, in your example, I think, of you know, talking about small arms trade and thinking it through the lens of gender and making it clear its feminist um, principles and its feminist engagement. Um, and of course, we're seeing it now in the US uh, with the issue of school shootings and the fact that school shootings are done by almost exclusively by young white men. 
um, and often motivated. I mean, we, you know, there's been this talk of the incel um, and red pill, which we're doing some work on in the special issue, mm. um, you know, often motivated uh, by young white men's um, sense of their own exclusion from um, the privileges of heterosexuality. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but, but thinking, of, thinking of gun shootings as a feminist issue, I think that does seem to be internationally, and of course immigration, that seems to be internationally, I think, a huge shift that's going on with feminist organizing. Yeah, I mean, to give, you know, earlier women's rights efforts, women's movement right. and liberation efforts credit, I mean, if one goes back and looks at the earliest women's self-conscious organizing as women, I mean, it was also about property, it was about yeah. marriage, it was about the nature of the family, it was about um, migration, it was about war. So it's not as if earlier women's movements didn't try to understand where does oppression occur and by right. what means does oppression occur and then try to address it. Um, but it is true, yeah. and, but it, it's true that we ask where are women's, where is women's oppression or where is the privileging of certain narrow forms of masculinity occurring and then not to try and get you have to be both intersectional in the broad sense of wherever um, women's interests and liberation and its deprivation occur you have to take it on but you can't take on everything it okay. is really hard and I think this is why the local grounding of any movement including the Malian women's movement for gun control was mm -hmm. localist hmm. and that's what made it really useful in transnational organizing it's not I, think I mean we go back to you know the the local global relationship it's not a tension it's a necessity you cannot I think have really effective transnational feminist organizing unless everybody's foot feet are on very specific grounds. Yeah, if I may step in here, I, my, my, my own sense of the right uh, is that it has been winning in part because it has been able to mobilize um, the idea of the local as conservative. Um, there's a very strong right-wing discourse about the global liberal elite, which has been colonizing, um, you know, depriving people of their uh, real, true voice. And of course, if feminist uh, uh, organizing happens on a high level of abstraction around uh, <clears throat> uh, universal human rights, we, we, you can end up arguing yourself into a corner where you're antagonizing people um, that whom you supposedly want to liberate. So, which is not to, I, I don't actually believe that, uh, that, that the, this idea that uh, human globe, that international human rights is a um, universalist discourse and therefore oppressive to women some wherever locally, but you have to ask them, you have to hear it from them. You cannot tell them that they will be liberated. And the, the struggle now is with the right, which has been claiming that we are uh, um, colonizing uh, people locally. And it happens within the, uh, Eastern Europe has been having this dynamic with uh, with Western Europe, right? The both um, 
Hungarian and uh, Polish uh, rise of the populist right has in part consisted in this um, uh, resistant, uh, resistance of dignity. Polish dignity has been somehow hurt by the liberal European um, effort to tell us what to do with our women or by shaming us, by telling us that we are homophobes. And, you know, to, you, you cannot respond to that by sending yet another letter of complaint to the European Union. You have to, you know, you have to have a kind of um, voice of um, local feminists or local gay movement being mobilized, um, which, which leads me to what I really wanted to ask you about. Um, wh where do you stand on um, the um, universal human rights language as the uh, as an effective language for women's rights? That I mean, it's it's a it's a long ongoing debate which you cannot avoid if you are interested in transnational women's rights. What, what, is this a discourse that has gone bankrupt, or do we actually need to revive it now that the, the right has been um, organizing so effectively at the UN? What's, the, what's your stand on that question? Well, I, I think, first of all, just to address the really interesting first, your lead up here, your, your run up the, the uh, diving board, um, um, and that is that nationalism has always uh, been not automatically patriarchal, but it's always been right there on the table to be picked up by patriarchs, right? Mm -hmm. Nationalism, it's no wonder that so many women, even women who have thrown their own efforts, oftentimes at great risk, into nationalist movements, have oftentimes become very, very wary of who uses nationalist rhetoric and nationalist symbolism for what patriarchal cause. So mm -hmm. I think what we're seeing and you're dealing with directly in um, Eastern Europe has a long legacy and, and a lot of Filipino nationalists should come and have seminars with you in Poland. I really mean that, you know, and that's true of, of Korean nationalists, Korean feminists. Korean feminists have dealt with the trickiness tr really of, um, of nationalism uh, far longer than many of us. Um, so I oftentimes think, who should be advising whom? And I would send Filipino feminists around to advise us all, um, and maybe they should be joined by Korean feminists um, to take up this question of how do you really deal with the question of sovereignty, the question of nationalism, and our women and their discourse. Um, and that does, I mean, you're absolutely right, that does raise the question of um, how to talk about human rights and women's rights. I've, in all my work, um, and of course I'm still learning, uh, thankfully, um, but I, I've always been wary of abstractions. I, I think it's mainly, I mean, we're all teachers. I think it's mainly because I'm a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And as a teacher, you always watch the kids in the back row slumping down, right? <laughs> the ones who are skeptical from the minute you, you know, say the word anything right, in <laughs> class, really. Um, it's, a, it's a healthy skepticism, but it is a skepticism. And as a result, I think, Agnesha, that I, I'm, I'm always eager to talk about both broad concepts, including concepts of rights, um, and um, what does it mean to be, uh, to have human dignity. I'm always 
um, determined to try and localize it, to ground it really quickly. And I think your word of warning is really a political word of warning as well as a, um, a philosophical word of warning, which is one always, this is true of the anti-slavery abolitionist movement, right? You had to be able to talk about not only human dignity, but what it meant to be an enslaved person. Um, and what does it mean to be an enslaver, right? If you look at the, the, the debates in the 19th uh, century. Um, and so I'm, I actually see declarations of human rights as having been very powerful and also mm -hmm. very empowering for a lot of people. It's one of the reasons why CEDAW has real meaning in Japan. CEDAW has real meaning in Indonesia. CEDAW has real meaning in Brazil um, because it really says we have rights because we are women and humans. Um, so I don't want to kind of throw it out because it's been abused and misused, but I do think that for it to be politically effective, it has to always be in connection with um, trying to understand how this, what this means in terms of everyday life of women, of men, and of people um, uh, who don't want to choose between the binaries. I, I know, that's not a very helpful answer no, in some ways, helpful, but it's actually. Um, I, don't, I don't have a solution myself. I think that we need to complicate the question and see, you know, the various dangers that come with both holding on to this concept and, but also with abandoning it. I've always been very troubled by, you know, listening to Western feminists tell me that human rights are a colonial discourse where human rights are really the only argument we have when, uh, you know, trying to to discipline our government, which has actually, you know, Poland has signed CEDO, Poland has signed all sorts of treaties. And if we stop believing that these treaties are binding, then we're completely, um, you know, up in the air. Um, so these are useful tools for women in those countries that are supposedly oppressed by uh, international human rights. So I think that 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 the the, the um, self-blaming uh, of some West some currents of Western feminism has actually worked against those who are supposedly being hurt. Um, but on the other hand, there is you know the, the, there is a problem with 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 universalism, and then I think there is yet another problem now with the right being so good at creating a new universalism. Uh, and they're, they're really effective at it, maybe because they're fresh at it. They, this whole idea of, um, you know, natural rights being an unquestionable, obvious thing. And they don't mention God. They say it's natural, uh, you know, it's natural law. Um, the World Congress of Families is a, you know, it's a, from our point of view, it's a really despicable way of thinking and, and, and talking, but it's quite fresh and energized in a way that I think feminism hasn't been since the 70s. You know, they've, the, the, the ball is really in their courtyard, and I think we need to be able to respond to that with, uh, you know, with, with equal energy. And I'm just wondering, you know, where, where, is, the femi where, where is feminist language um, most vibrant? Um, and I'm, I'm not so sure anymore. Um, Can I jump in on this? Uh, yes, because, um, and I think, uh, uh, Agnieszka, your question is really an incredibly important one. And I think you're right. 
that it's not, I think we can't choose between embracing human rights and abandoning human rights, just neither of those are real options. But I want to go back to something that was asked earlier about transnational feminism or global human rights. Anything that's transnational and global uh, is received with skepticism in large parts of the world, um, because there is still the uh, histories of colonialism that continue to inform the post-colonial present. And that's not just a Western feminist stance, it's a post-colonial feminist kind of healthy critical position. Um, to say, well, what's a real agenda being advanced either under a trans, looks like a progressive project, which is a transnational feminist project, or it's a global human rights project. What other agendas are being advanced here? Um, are they racial? Are they religious? Um, are they, you know, uh, hegemonizing projects that are designed to introduce perhaps even open open up uh, uh, spaces, new spaces for the neoliberal market to enter? So I think it's a really important skepticism to take on board. And human rights has been used for those, for progressive and non-progressive agendas. And we think we have to appreciate, under, we, we, we do really need to take that on board that just to say I'm on the side of human rights doesn't make you a good guy or a good, you know, good feminist. It just doesn't. We see how, say, states have taken on anti-trafficking agendas and how this has hurt certain constituencies it was meant to help, whether it's sex workers or it's migrants. Um, you know, uh, we see how, and we talked about this earlier, how um, taking on agendas that are about um, removing the veil for women under the guise of gender equality, you know, arguing the seed or language, uh, has actually hurt certain constituencies, in fact, further alienated them and made them even more suspicious of these so-called progressive agendas. So I think we are walking um, on eggshells. I mean, this is a really, really, really difficult space on which to intervene because there are such polarized positions on it. And that's why I, I also want to come back to um, Cynthia, if I, if I may. Uh, um, come back to an important moment, I think, where, again, the skepticism around global and um, okay. transnational really hit a peak was post 9-11. And I really want to ask you this question. You've probably been asked a lot of times about, you know, 1960s and your time at Berkeley, but I want to fast forward this to 2001 and 9-11 and how that perhaps influence your own thinking on feminism in transnational context as well as in the context of your own work on international uh, relations um, how did it shift or change your your position uh, or thinking on feminism which the 60s at Berkeley or 911 <laughs> I would say because I do something big happened after 911 the Berkeley 60s movement was highly patriarchal Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. You know, so yes. let's. I don't glorify. I mean, I was there. You know, I was at the bridge table next to Mario Savio, um, uh, but um, the sixth, the, the Berkeley movement was uh, a, definitely a pre-feminist movement. Um, mm -hmm. I learned a lot from it. I went on strike, but I didn't go on strike with any feminist consciousness. Alas. Um, <laughs> we all learn, right? Yeah. We all learn. It's really important to always fess up to what you didn't know when you didn't know it, and then to say clearly who taught you. Um, but for me, the 9-11, um, that is the 9-11 the um, moment, 
um, in some ways, this is going to sound, uh, how to make it not sound like I told you so, because I don't mean that. Um, but I, the thing is, I've been tracking militarism for 20 plus years. I really started tracking militarism before I was a feminist, because I, my, I spent about seven years looking at the workings of racism inside of militaries all over the world. Um, but actually, I was interested in militaries. I hadn't really conceptualized militarization at that point, but I was following militaries and racism. Um, but I started really thinking about militarization and all the forms it takes in all its nooks and crannies, not just in national security settings, um, really from 1981. I think I can almost date it, 1981 which was about the time when I also was becoming more consciously a feminist. Um, so that when 9-11, and that's a shorthand for a lot of things, but when 9-11 happened, and particularly post 9-11, that's really what matters, right? I mean, there were many, you know, um, awful killings in many different settings, and they didn't turn into something called 9-11. It's the post 9-11 justification for ramping up a much more diffuse kind of militarism. Right. That's what I really think is, and I think for me, um, it really took the form of all regimes anywhere that wanted to legitimize increased militarization now had a new tool for it. Um, yeah. It doesn't mean that Indian regimes hadn't been militarized before i.e. Indira Gandhi, of course, um, or that militarization hadn't been embraced um, by the French and the Dutch and um, the Chilean under Pinochet and Argentina under the Junta. They certainly had been. What post 9-11 discourse and policy and political economies of weapons um, did was give regimes that wanted to ramp up their own internal militarizations a new language and a new set of allies, primarily the U.S., of course, the U.S. government. Oh, yes. um, and that doesn't mean that it was less gendered. It was distinctly gendered in each place, I think. Um, and, but for me, I didn't, this sounds lazy, and I don't mean to say, it didn't mean that I had to actually, I was already perverse enough in my curiosities that I was really keeping track of all kinds of militarizations in the late 80s and through the 90s. Um, I now had to really be even more energetic about it. Um, mm -hmm. And I had to rely on a, a lot of researchers I hadn't read before um, and listened to before to really take on its new forms. But for me, 9-11 was a ramping up of something I'd been right. watching and alarmed about for a long time. And in that sense, you know, when, you're, when your alarm increases, that qualitatively does change you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're right. 
I think I think we have time for maybe one one more question or any of either of you want to have a final question. I'm curious about your sense of motivations and gratification that that women get in right wing movements. Um, I had a conversation yesterday with a um, woman from Cyprus who's doing anthropological work with right wing women. And one thing she told me, and it sounded a lot like what I'm hearing from a, a doctoral student who's researching militaristic groups in, in Poland, is that there are lots of women there now, that, that these um, movements are much more keen to recruit women and that these women um, get a sense of dignity from, for instance, learning to shoot. And they believe that feminists are wimps. That they are that they are the hardy well, women are, of but... <laughs> today's world, of course. But I mean, um, yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, that there is a kind of sturdiness. But it, but I, 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 this took me by surprise because I always thought that to be a right wing woman um, is to cherish a certain traditional version of femininity and to be part of that, uh, you know, um, uh, package of women and children. But no, there. this is another, this seems to be a new, um, I don't know, muscular version of femininity. I don't know if you've come across this at all and whether it's just a coincidence or a pattern emerging. Well, the thing is, numbers of state militaries have been playing on this aspiration of a lot of young women, because we're talking about particularly young women. Yes. Um, uh, for at least since the night late 1970s. So state militaries have really honed their skills on appealing to 17, 18, 19-year-old women to shoot, to take risks, to do things that are dangerous, that are physically demanding. Um, and so they were there first. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, but it also is, I think, a maturing, if one can use that word, of various right-wing movements. I mean, they're catching up with a feminist spirit in those girls. Well, you know, you can co-opt anything, yeah. and you can co-opt, you know, universal uh, human rights. Um, you can co-opt uh, women as physically um, capable. Um, things that uh, feminists have promoted, but that the state or in this case, insurgent right-wing movements can also use. Um, and it is true, if you interview women who've joined state militaries um, mm -hmm. around the world, one of the things that 17, 18, 19-year-old women, not all, but a lot, and this is about, it's about sport as well. Um, mm -hmm. That is that notion that women have physical capacities that have been underestimated by their fellows and their parents and, you know, whoever they think the grown-ups are. And this is their chance to show them. Um, and so I think that women being recruited, as you say, into uh, Polish militias um, may be new for the Polish militia, right-wing militias, but it's not new out there in other um, settings. And mm -hmm. I mean, as you say, right-wing movements, wherever they are, um, are thinking about gender all the time. Right. They need and they don't think about gender, you know, um, in just their own stereotypic ways. Uh, there's a new book out by um, the American social historian, um, 
Oh, come on. Oh, Lin Linda Gordon, of course. Linda oh, Gordon. Right. She does. Yeah, have and, well, right. and well, yeah. Linda and Linda Gordon has out a new book on um, the Ku on women in the Ku Klux Klan um, in the North, not not in the American South. Um, so we ha we have a long history of um, wonderful historians looking at women in what seem to be um, patriarchal movements anti-feminist movements, Women Against Suffrage, uh, the wonderful book by Elna Green on women, women's anti-suffrage clubs. Um, what I think you're bringing up is really important, and that is that physicality matters, and that a lot of particularly young women, but not only young women, um, particularly young women um, are, are resentful when they feel physically capable and are shunted into paths where it doesn't acknowledge their physical capabilities. Sometimes that means they go and they play soccer, right? Mm -hmm. um, other times it means that they are at least vulnerable to these mm -hmm. sorts of recruitments by right-wing militias. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely to be curious about, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh my God, it's such a depressing note to no, end. No, we're not depressed. <laughs> we can't we end on, no, on listen, women in militias. No, listen, here's my no. end note. If we really, get, give me if, something else, honey. If, they, if we get depressed, they win. Right? This is true. <laughs> they um, are, yeah. There, that's much better. We can't. Um, I, I want to, uh, for, for all of us here, I want to just thank you so much, Cynthia. This was fabulous conversation. Sure. Well, thanks to you all. Illuminating Great. and exciting and empowering, and I think we've all learned from each other and from Absolutely. you. Absolutely, it's the best. Um, and, and from signs and the whole community of signs, I thank you. And, well, and thank uh, you. Uh, thank you all, and... Um, Thank you and good night. <laughs> this was great. Thank Thanks Wonderful. a lot. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. I, I hope our paths will really cross. <laughs>